Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. As you've come to rely on Deep State Radio's in-depth expert analysis, we hope that you will consider becoming a member to support our efforts. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content on Tuesdays and Thursdays, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our new Ukraine Daily Brief newsletter, delivered to your inbox each evening. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MARCH2022 to receive 28% off a monthly or annual membership. Thank you. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and we are joined today by, in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, the one and only Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. How are you doing today, Rosa? I'm very well, thank you, David. Excellent. And we are joined by General Mark Hurtling, former commanding general of U.S. Army Europe and the 7th Army. And I don't know, are you in Florida, Mark? I am in Florida, Flagler Beach, Florida. Beautiful day today, too. Very nice. Well, I'm glad you're having a beautiful day. It's cold in New York City. It's not It's not so great, I really got to admit. I'm a little jealous. And that's why you live in Florida, right? Because everybody who speaks to you is jealous the whole time. And uh, we are also joined by Michael Weiss, who's the news director at New Lines Magazine, co-author of The Menace of Unreality, How the Kremlin Weaponizes Information, Culture, and Money, and a forthcoming book on Russian espionage. And where are you today, Michael? I'm also in New York. It was a very cold and blustery day, as you know, David. Yeah, no, it's really unpleasant, really unpleasant. And I blame my dog for making me go out in it. And I think in Washington, D.C., we are joined by David Sanger of the New York Times. How are you doing today, David? Uh, I'm good. I'm also in New York. I felt a sort of a something in the force. There's something changed in the atmosphere. The cold weather. (laughs) Finally, we're, we're, we're coming back as a city, clearly. All right. So clearly, we're here today to talk again about the situation in Ukraine. You know, it's uh, almost two weeks since this war started. There were a lot of folks who would have predicted at uh, the beginning of this war, A, that it wasn't going to happen, B, that if it was going to happen, it was going to be small and not large, uh, and C, that if it happened large, the Russians would win it all real fast. None of that happened, Mark. Where do you think we are? Where do you think we go from here? Um, David, what what I'd like to do is look at it from a military perspective, obviously, since I'm a military guy, break it down into the strategy and the operational art of uh, the Russian commander, as well as the tactics of the Russian forces. So what I see is that Mr. Putin had four main strategic objectives. Number one, he wanted to subjugate Ukraine. Number two, he wanted to further divide NATO, put them on the horns of a dilemma. Number three, he wanted to 
further divide an already divided United States, he saw an opportunity in doing that and conducting this operation. And number four, I think he wanted to improve his, uh, his economic capacity by using the, the Nord Stream pipeline as an economic tool to, to blackmail Europe. It appears that he's failed in all those areas so far, uh, and he's becoming a pariah on the world scene. But what those strategies relate to is how he's conducting military operations within Ukraine. What I see right now, uh, and I know this has been talked about ad nauseum on, uh, on various cable TV shows with a big map with a lot of red circles and, and uh, blotched out areas. I see what the Russian forces have done is attack on four axes of advance. They have one coming out of Belarus, north of Kyiv. That has currently split into two, both northwest and northeast. And they are currently bogged down. Uh, they've not moved further than Hostomel. They're stuck in Cherniv. Uh, these are two towns where they have fought fierce resistance against Ukrainian fighters, both Ukrainian army as well as their ter ter territorial forces. The second axis is coming out of Kharkiv. And that's the purpose was to not only control that city, that major city, the second most populated one in Ukraine, but also open up another route to Kyiv, which they are currently attempting to execute with a little bit more success, but also to link up potentially in the south with the forces they had hoped to come out of Mariupol heading north. The purpose of those two forces were to basically have a pincher envelopment, the classic kettle drum, the battle of annihilation to trap all the Ukrainian forces that they saw still in the Donbass and supporting those forces down in the Donbass. The southern approach out of Crimea with support from the Crimea Navy base has gone to the northwest toward Kherson and to the, and to the northeast toward Mariupol. They have had better success in the south than they have in the north, but still they are plagued by logistics, even though they have some elements helping them out of uh, the Crimea Peninsula. There has been, much to my surprise, very little activity in the Donbass. They have kept the Ukrainian forces that were there basically frozen there. They have not allowed them to maneuver because they don't know what might happen next. But there hasn't been a whole lot of activity in the eastern part of the, the country. The Russians have not achieved air superiority, uh, air superiority. Neither have the Ukrainians, but they are both flying on a daily basis. The Russians, as of right now, have committed of the 127 tactical groups that they had surrounding Ukraine before the war started, they probably have about 125 of them inside Ukraine. There is still an uncommitted naval infantry force in the Black and the Azov Sea. All of those things are dependent, in my view, on a sustained logistics operations, which they have not been able to unscrew just yet. Russia has ADA, air defense artillery, bubbles all over the country, but they're having trouble with their fighter aircraft. They have launched, as of today, my last read was 670 missiles. They're shooting between 20 and 30 ballistic missiles a day, most of them coming out of Mother Russia, some of them coming out of elements within the theater of Ukraine. 70 of them, from what I understand, have been launched from Belarus, and there have been a couple of them launched from the Black Sea. We don't know much about the status of the Russian army, although they have taken casualties, but we do know that Kyiv has become their main objective. It was from the very beginning, the center of gravity, if you will. That's really a view of the operational dynamics linked to the strategy. 
where they're having trouble, David, and we could talk all day about this, is the disconnects at the tactical level. They have poorly led soldiers who have low morale. They have, they have not fed them or provided reinforcements with fuel or ammunition. Their generals, two of them have already died. And, and Michael brought a big point on that in, in his recent article. They have several others that seem to be indicative that they didn't understand the fight as they got into it. And they're disconnected across the board. Their communication is weak. They are not using encrypted devices. All of those things are helping Ukraine's forces. And I'll end with basically saying we are not covering the battlefield fight as well as we are covering the civilian casualties and the, and the terrorist actions that Mr. Putin has taken. But my take in talking to some of my contacts still in Ukraine is it has been a pitch battle on many fronts and the Ukrainians certainly are not losing this just yet. Okay, well, let's keep moving along with our overview of this. Michael, you can react to what Mark said. The other thing you might want to talk about is how this looks from the point of view of the Ukrainian military. I defer to Mark's uh, military analysis. I mean, I'm, I'm a journalist, and to understand sort of operations, tactics, strategy, I have to talk to, to people such as himself. Based on my reporting, I can tell you, I just got off the phone about an hour and a half ago, maybe less with a senior officer of GUR, which is the Ukrainian military intelligence agency. And, um, you know, people in our own IC can tell you that even at a time when a lot of Ukrainian spy services, namely the SBU, their domestic security service, was Swiss cheese with Russian assets and penetrations and, and all kinds of corruption, their military intelligence service was seen to be quite good. And it's only got better. It's one of the best in Europe, according to Mark Pollock-Moropoulos, who's the former head of European operations at CIA. So I actually put a lot of stock in the credibility of these sources. And this is a guy who, mind you, I've known for four years doing a lot of reporting and a lot of research in Ukraine, and he has often rolled his eyes at official government pronouncements. So he, he's, he's want to give me a, a very unvarnished assessment of things. He answered the phone on signal, and he was almost giddy, and in a way that he was not on day two of this war, when, you know, I mean, their, their GUR uh, headquarters or regional headquarters had been under merciless attack by Russian bombardment. A lot of their officers were fleeing for cover. And he said, and I quote, now is not the time for crying. Now is the time for laughing. And I said, what do you mean? He's like, just look at the manpower and firepower losses that the Russians have sustained so far. And you don't have to take Ukrainian government sources at this at face value. And I suggest everyone doesn't. There's some very good open source intelligence analysts on social media, on Twitter. There's a guy called Oryx, who I think it's a consortium of a, a Dutch guy and, and some other people, including one guy from the Czech Republic. Anyway, they verify what they see in terms of images and videos. And the Russians have lost over 800 pieces of pretty heavy duty military equipment, ranging from T-90 tanks, BTRs, Pantsir air defense systems, these things, have, I, I don't know what the dollar value is on each of them, but it's in the tens of millions, right? The Ukrainians cannot believe the windfall in much of this material, I should add, is, is actually in good use. They, they've, they've simply, the Russian forces have deserted, right? So the, these did not take in any kind of fire. They were not damaged in battle. The crew members just ran off. And I asked my source, where have they gone? He said, they went into the woods. And now, based on signals intercepts, we are able to determine that a lot of them have actually started looting and occupying civilian homes all over the country. Moridiori, he, 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 he used the word, which is like marauder or, or looter, which is a criminal offense punishable by death in Ukraine. So if you actually look at the figures, KIA, 
the POWs, some of which the Ukrainians have perhaps unwisely carted out on video and television to give their testimony, but also, more importantly, the people who have just run off, the deserters. You're looking at serious losses in manpower on the Russian side. And and one of the difficulties, David, is that I see in, in the reporting in the West a lot of conflation between casualties and fatalities which is a big mistake. You know, fatality obviously is somebody who get who falls in the in the line of in, in battle. Casualties encompass fatalities, POWs, people who've been injured, and people who've deserted. The Ukrainians, when they talk about numbers like 11,000, 12,000, are mostly referring to casualties minus POWs. They have a separate category for that. So a lot gets lost in translation. But look, I mean, I think that you know the US has now confirmed between 3,000 and 4,000 Russian fatalities. That's a 12 days of war, right? And I mean, I've, I've seen comparative studies on, you know, in social media and in various news reporting, more than the Russians lost in, in the Chechen wars. I believe more than they lost in the first several years of their campaign in Afghanistan. So this is not going well, just in, in, in terms of sheer statistics. And as Mark pointed out, if they've got nearly 100% of the forces they had arrayed at the border of the last several months in country, and yet they are completely stalled in the north and the east, where, whereas they might be making some minor progress in the south. This is not boding well for them. And to that, I can add, I just did a, an interview with the second in command of a guerrilla resistance movement or an insurgency in the waiting. And Mark was very kind enough to offer some insights as to the kind of training his forces will have received when they used to belong to the Ukrainian military. And indeed, some of them still are embedded in conventional military units. And he says he's got over a thousand people strong. Some of them have already conducted diversionary tactics or sabotage operations across enemy lines or behind enemy lines in Kherson, in Kharkiv. These are areas that are now contested by the Russians or in in Kherson. Technically, I suppose the the media is liking to use this term controlled, even though there's not much control. If you look at the Ukrainians who daily turn out in protests, going right up to Russian soldiers with their guns and defying them and telling them to go back home. This is going to be an impossible country to occupy, whether in part or in whole. And, you know, look, I've had to kind of take a lot of stock in my own sort of view of the matter, because, as I said, I've been traveling to Ukraine for the last eight years, once or twice a year. And I've done enough work, particularly in the Middle East and on, you know, with the Syrian opposition to know that what you're told about their resolve and robustness and their willingness to defend is not necessarily what's going to happen when push comes to shove. So in a way, I, I felt was I being gaslit or gaslighted by the Ukrainians? And, you know, I'd come back home and I'd listen to these sort of dire American assessments, you know, the loss of Ukraine, Ukrainian command and control within a half hour, you know, all the fixed wing rotary aircraft on, on, the, on the tarmac and in the aerodromes would be wiped out within a matter of minutes, if not days. None of this has come to pass. I've heard various explanations as to why logistical problems, simple corruption, which has rotted out the heart of the Russian military, industrial complex, just as it's rotted out the heart of literally every state institution and sector inside all of Russia. It, it sort of boggles the mind that somehow people, analysts, could have thought that this was somehow an in, in the Ukrainian, or I'm sorry, the Russian armed forces were, were not susceptible to the same pathology that has plagued Putin's Russia for the last 22 years. I mean, I'm seeing things like Sukhoi 34 bombers with hobby store bought GPS systems made in America, Right. The reporting that was done on the alleged killing of a, a Russian major general suggests that that KIA was called in to the FSB or by an FSB officer in Ukraine using a, a cell phone with a Ukrainian SIM card, allowing Ukrainian signals intelligence to basically just intercept the entire conversation. So 
a lot of what the Russians are doing, just based on empirical evidence that we've seen in the last 12 days, is amateur hour. I mean, it is, it is almost mind-bogglingly stupid. And from a military standpoint, I mean, again, talk, talk to the experts on this. But if any American soldier were doing this kind of thing, he'd probably be cashiered. I mean, it's, it's just, it's extraordinary. So, David, the last time we spoke to you, you were just coming out of the Munich Security Conference. What we've just heard described was not discussed at the Munich Security Conference, despite all the big, no. big, big name folks there. It's not playing out the way we expected. When you were writing about next generation, you know, information warfare, I don't think you meant hobby store GPS equipment jerry-rigged into Sukhoi bombers or uh, Russian troops calling in generals who were killed in action on their cell phones. How stark is the difference between what the policy elite thought was going to happen and, and what has happened? Well, it's pretty elite. It's pretty stark. The elites were clearly wrong and it's still pretty early is, I guess, what I would, I would say out of this. So what's the stark part? Well, you've just heard some descriptions of that. We thought this would be very heavy cyber and information warfare at the beginning and that the Russians would be successful at shutting down communications, power grid, and so forth. They haven't been. The question of whether they tried and failed, whether they tried and were blocked, or whether they didn't try is still a ripe one out there. And I think one of the big questions we need to learn about, we're trying. The second thing is that many of the people who were at the Munich Security Conference through the Saturday of the conference, which was three days before the war broke out, the conference ended Sunday. The first real attacks were Monday night. That was down in the east. And then by Wednesday, the war happened. There were many people who still were doubting it, who still thought either Putin was doing this for negotiating advantage or Putin was going to limit himself to the south and southeast. Both of those turned out to be wrong. No one, I think, that I spoke to thought that they would get themselves into this logistical nightmare. We were running stories about what a better force Russia has built. They had built a better force. But that's a different thing than knowing how to use a better force. And we underestimated the ability of the Ukrainians to make their lives miserable. It's still entirely possible, I would say probable, that in the long run, the Russians grab the cities and are able to grind them down. They will be able to hold some cities. I think President Biden had it right earlier today when he said they won't be able to hold the country. So that then asks you the question, what's Putin's endgame here and what's Biden and the West's endgame? So since we've covered where we are right now, let me go take the foolish step of trying to think about where we may be going. Putin's got to decide, does he find himself an early and easy out by saying, I've achieved my objectives, live with the thought that he's controlling his own media so that he can make up any story he wants, retreat and just hold that part of the Russian-speaking South and Southeast that he's already got pretty, pretty good and uncontested control of. Call it a victory, call it a day. The problem with that is there are so many sanctions now in on him that if he's holding that part of the country, I can't imagine they get lifted. So if he's paying the price, he may think I might as well go for the whole country. He could go for the whole country, 
But as you've just heard, that's going to lead to an insurgency that probably is the scenario that has the highest chance of causing him domestic trouble at home, because it'll just mean more casualties. So if you've got three or 4,000 in the first couple of weeks, you can imagine what this looks like at the end of a year of insurgency, or two years, or three. His third possibility is he divides the country, decides that he's going to try to control just the eastern portion of it, where he's got shorter supply lines and a more willing population, or at least a more Russian-speaking population, and basically hope that he's crushing the rest of the elected government by confining them to the western part of the country. So that's a, a possibility. And I'm sure there are gradations in between. Then he's got to make two other big decisions. Does he go after the Western countries that are the pipeline in for his arms? We published a lengthy story yesterday about how the United States got 17,000 anti-tank pieces of ammo into the country, big pieces of ammo, in six days. That only happens if you're able to bust them across or truck them across from Poland and Romania. And so we've got this sort of version, our version of the Berlin airlift underway. Does he shut that down by threatening the NATO countries that are feeding it? Or does he fear that that expands the war? Does he try to take parts of of the former Soviet area of influence like Moldova or Georgia, which is also not in NATO at this point? And what does he do about cyber work that the U.S. presumably is launching at him from Eastern Europe? And then does he reach back at us and go after our banks and so forth because it's his only way of matching these economic sanctions, which, of course, risk bringing us all into direct conflict? So he's got some really big decisions, and they're at a moment when he's clearly embarrassed. The problem is that Putin, when he is embarrassed, frequently doubles down. And when he doubles down, he gets in deeper. And I suspect that's his instinct right now, but we don't know. Before I pivot and and start going and and asking Mark and, and Michael and everybody to follow up on on the scenarios David's described, as I always do when I go around the horn here, I go to Rosa last because she is required that I go to her last. That's her. It's in her contract. <laughs> or, or, or second or third, just not yeah. first. <laughs> um, but, you but know, you know that Rosa's investment in nuclear silos over the past few years. It's going to pay off. I feel it's going to pay off, David. She's seeing the real estate prices rise already. Yeah. Well, my job, I do see my job primarily as trying to come up with the gloomiest possible scenarios. And I wanted to, to, I guess, sort of pick up where David just left off and say, so, okay, everybody's in agreement that the Ukrainian military's performance has been better than anyone could have imagined and, and hoped for. And the Russian military's performance has been worse than most of us imagined it would be. I guess what I wonder is, number one, does that matter? And number two, if it matters, might it even make it worse? And so on, on question one, does it matter? I, to the extent that pretty clearly the Russian public is not, is not aware of how poorly things are going. There, you know, some inklings may be beginning to get through, but, but clearly the censorship and control over information within Russia 
clearly has meant that quite a lot of Russians, at least outside of small government military circles, are not only oblivious to the to the true causes of the conflict, et cetera, but are oblivious to how poorly the Russian military is doing in Ukraine. Given that, it raises the obvious question, is Putin embarrassed? Who is he embarrassed in front of? Is there any domestic pressure on him outside of, again, those small elite military and political circles to change anything if the general public doesn't really know how badly things are going? Also, what if Putin doesn't care, right? I mean, clearly the Russians seem to be losing far more people to to death, to desertion, to injuries, et cetera, than they had anticipated, not to mention having lots of people who who effectively are out of the fight because they don't have the right equipment, they don't have supplies, et cetera. Uh, Maybe Putin doesn't care. You know, if he's perfectly happy to sacrifice large numbers of conscripts, does it matter? Does it in fact deter him? Or or is this just something that, you know, he dismisses with a shrug and, and he can control popular awareness anyway. So what difference does it make? I mean, clearly during the, the Chechen conflict, one of his key moves was to try to make sure that, although obviously you couldn't keep it from families forever, if, if their loved ones were dead, you could certainly pressure them not to make a big deal out of it and to try to keep it as quiet as possible. So I'm, I'm not sure we necessarily have much to celebrate about the fact that the Ukrainians are doing better than expected and the Russians are doing worse. And and if anything, as I said, my second question was, is it possible that this makes things even worse? And and David obviously alluded to this, you know, with the lots of cliches about cornered animals being most dangerous and so forth. My my fear is that in a way, it's sort of like for Putin, Ukraine is too big to lose. If in fact his entire sense of himself, sense of his his own confidence in his own ability to survive politically, even possibly literally to survive, is bound up with his, his ability to succeed in Ukraine from his perspective and on his terms. Does the fact that they're doing badly, it would be nice to think that that would put some pressure on him to you know come back to the negotiating table, make some concessions, try to find a diplomatic solution. My, my fear, and I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear Mark and Michael on this as well, is that, as David suggests, that just might make him double down and increase the likelihood that we end up with some sort of more direct confrontation between the U.S. and other Western states and, and Putin, which would be exceedingly dangerous. So, so I, I want to feel like, hooray, Ukraine, you know, go, 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 you're awesome. And hooray, the Russians aren't doing that well. But as I said, you know, my fear is, does this actually make the geopolitical situation even more perilous because it makes Putin more unpredictable, feel more cornered and more inclined to up the ante rather than de-escalate? Well, those are good questions, uh, both yours and uh, David's. And so I want to turn to uh, Mark and Michael and the rest of you in the remaining 15 or so minutes we've got. This is the moment we take a quick break. We say thank you to the folks in the general public who've joined us for free. And uh, we encourage you all to uh, go and uh, click on membership at the dsrnetwork.com so that you can become a member and you can listen to the rest of this broadcast and the rest of all the others in the members only portion of the broadcast. So go do that and then you'll be able to pick up and listen to where we go as we discussed what's going to happen next. And uh, if you don't do it, well, thanks very much for joining us and we hope to see you, hear you again soon. And um, I will be back in one moment. 
Wake up each morning to our newest podcast, the Ukraine Daily Brief. Each morning, Grant Haver and Chris Kotnor will bring you the latest news, developments, and the stories we're following on the Ukraine crisis from news sources from around the world. The podcast is available now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and members receive access to the show via private member feed.